Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome back. This is Warfare, the podcast where we say we are on the front lines of military history. We stretch all the way back to Napoleonic battles and all the way through to the War on Terror and the conflicts that rage around the world today. I am your host, James Rogers, and I'm very happy to say we've got an old friend of mine, Olienka Ajala, Dr. Olienka Ajala from Leeds Beckett University, coming onto the podcast to tell us about the history of Boko Haram. Olienka is a former West Point fellow. He's been working on this topic for, well, over a decade now. I first met Olienka when we were both working as young lecturers at the University of York. How time flies. But every time I talk to Olienka, I learn something brand new about Boko Haram. And you're going to do the same today. We're going to stretch this history right back to Nigerian independence in the 1960s and bring it right up to today where Boko Haram has, well, potentially split to become a new form of Islamic state. I know you're going to absolutely be fascinated by this one, so do drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or with one click on Spotify. But now, here is Dr. Olienka Ajala on the history of Boko Haram. Hi, Olienka. It's been a long time since we've had a catch-up. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. How are you? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Where are you based now? Yeah, I'm based at Leeds. So I lecture at Leeds Beckett University, just round the corner from York. Yeah, great stuff. So you're remaining in the broader Yorkshire area. Yes, I've been in Yorkshire for 10 years now. <laughs> 10 years? Yeah, January makes it 10 years. That was the start of the PhD up till now, so 10 years. Oh, wow. So you were at York before I was at York, weren't you? I think so. Yeah, maybe slightly before you. Beautiful place. It is. And uh, absolute pleasure to work with you teaching international security. Yeah, absolutely. And then we had a roundtable two years ago on drone warfare. Yes, we did. Good memory, yeah, on drone warfare in the Sahel. And that links into what we're talking about today, of course, because Boko Haram, which is a group we're going to be discussing, they operate a fine line up towards that border between Niger and the Chad Basin, the Chad Lake Basin, then around down into Nigeria. And where else do they operate? Is that about it? In Cameroon, maybe? Yeah, Cameroon. So operating four main countries, Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad, Nijay, yeah. So basically, those are the four countries where they operate. Uh, okay, we're going to get into all of this. And am I right in thinking that you've just got a new position advising in Nigeria? It's not in Nigeria. So it's, it's a new position with an organization in South Africa. So we're working to look at the link between violent conflicts and whether or not there is a link with climate change. We want to see if climate change in any way has actually impacted on migration around this region. Ah, I'd love to study more about the impact of 
climate change, on the pressures of society in regions of the world that perhaps already incredibly tense or have open violent conflicts, whether or not climate change creates almost climate conflicts and exacerbates terrorist organisations or the appeal of terrorist groups to local populations, whether or not you can link climate change to a growth of violent extremism. Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, it's difficult to link it directly, but it's a threat multiplier. So we call it threat multiplier. So it exacerbates the threat presently. So a very good example is the shrinkage of Lake Chad. So one of the reasons why Lake Chad has shrunk is because of the low rainfall in the region, which has impacted. And this lake has shrunk by 95% in the last 50 years. So a lake that used to benefit 30 million people now only benefit less than 3 million. So this is one of the issues. All the people, the 27, 28 million people who no longer feed from the lake are now vulnerable. So many of them have actually joined the ranks of Boko Haram and Islamic State West Africa. So you could say, well, indirectly, the lack of fishing and farming activities in the area as a result of climate change has actually pushed people to joining these organizations who offer protection in return. Oh, wow. So moving towards these non-state violent extremists as a means to provide security, food, money, most importantly, where perhaps there's a void of state support because the state either doesn't have the money or hasn't caught up with the fact that there has been such a massive climate and economic change in the region. Absolutely. The state doesn't have the money and these regions are largely ungoverned. They don't have the resources to govern this area. And, you know, in international relations, if you still remember, ungoverned spaces are spaces where you have these groups and where they flourish. And then they offer an alternative form of governance to the people. So they project themselves as the only government available. And Islamic State West Africa, for instance, have actually done quite well in providing some infrastructure to the people. So now that's the only form of governance they have there. I feel like I'm in one of your, your lectures, Olienka, and I'm happy about it. So take us into the history of Boko Haram. When should we go back to? Is this kind of the early 1990s? Is that a good time to go back to or is that a little too early? When was Boko Haram established? I think we should start from the 1960s when Nigeria gained independence because we cannot talk about Boko Haram without talking about the link between religion, politics and violent conflict. So the use of religious identification as a tool for political manipulation is common in Nigeria. So right since independence, religion has been used as an important political tool for attaining or sustaining political power in the country. So during electioneering campaign, religious affiliations is always very important. So that's why in Nigeria, you would find it very difficult since 1999, Nigeria has never had a Christian president and a Christian vice president or vice versa or Muslim president or a Muslim vice president. So because geographically, the country is almost evenly split between Christians and Muslims, predominantly Muslim North, predominantly Muslim South, especially the Southeast and the South region are almost 98, 99% Christians. There are more Muslims in the Southwest but when you then go to northern Nigeria, it's predominantly Muslim, more than 90% Muslim. So we don't know for political reasons, it's never been stated the percentage of Christians and Muslims, but it's almost even in the country. So there was a gentleman agreement in 1999 that when the president is Christian, then the vice president would be Muslim and vice versa, just to represent everyone in the country. So... Since then, we've seen that the predominantly Muslim North have tried since the 1960s, 1980s to make sure that there is a link between religion and politics. So in the 1980s, there was a cleric called Sheikh Abubakar Mahmoud Gumi. So he was an Islamic scholar who never hid his disdain for Christianity. At some point, he actually said that Muslims must never allow non-Muslims to rule over them. And so all over the north, there have always been a clamor to have a Muslim president because they preach purity 
And they say, well, for us to be pure, we have to have a pure leader. And for us to have a pure leader, he or she has to be a Muslim. So for a very long time, especially at the grassroots level, religion has always been a tool of political emancipation. So this was tried in the 1980s to have Sharia as an alternative law in northern Nigeria. But because in the 1980s and 1990s, Nigeria was ruled by the military, this did not fly. So in 1999, Nigeria returned to democracy. And immediately Nigeria returned to democracy, this agitation began. So around 2000, 2001, 12 northern states in Nigeria adopted Sharia law as an alternative to Western law. So from 1999, just to clarify, there was a opening up of more religious freedom in the country, clear divisions between religious representation by political leaders, and that potentially paved the way a little bit for there to be certain states to have new religious laws implemented or dictated upon them. Absolutely, absolutely. Because up till 1999, Nigeria was ruled by the military. And the military did everything possible to make sure that they subdue issues of religion, ethnicity, as much as possible. But in 1999, when Nigeria returned to democracy, there was liberty, so to say, which then resulted in different groups beginning to agitate for different things. And because Nigeria is already in a democracy, there is human rights, freedom of religion, freedom of association, and then freedom to register these groups that wouldn't have been possible during the military era. So the adoption of Islamic rule or Sharia law by these 12 northern states was actually a precursor to bigger religious agitations and the formation of more extremist groups in the country. Over the years, even if you look at the educational attainment in Nigeria, the South is very well educated. There was a presentation I did recently and I studied the graph and I discovered that in some states in southern Nigeria, there's 98% female literacy, which is people between the ages of 16 and 25 that are able to read and write. Whereas if you go to some northern states, it's as low as 15%. So there is this clear division in terms of educational attainment between the north and the south. But the North is able to make this up with the religion in order to unify the region based on religion. So the idea of using Sharia law to harmonize the Northern states was a grand design to achieve a common voice which is needed for political authority and emancipation. And that continued up till 2002. So 2000-2001 was when Sharia started. And when you look at a lot of publications about Boko Haram, you hear that they were formed in 2002. But actually, they were not formed in 2002. They were formed in 1995. Okay. All right. So take us into the founders of this. Who founded Boko Haram? So going by the record of one of the scholars in Nigeria who have written extensively on this, a guy called Abdulmajid Belu. So he reckons that Boko Haram was actually founded in 1995 under the name Shabab. So that's the first thing in terms of when it was formed. But because in 1995, Nigeria was under the military rule, it remained a clandestine organization and it had very few members. Secondly, it was founded by an Islamic scholar known as Lawan Abubakar. So, by Belo's account, Lawan established the sect in 1995 at the University of Maiduguri, Borno State. Lawan is um, an Islamic scholar and also a university lecturer. So, he was the leader until around 2001 when he moved back to Saudi Arabia for further studies. And then he handed over to Muhammad Yusuf. So when you look at many accounts of Boko Haram, this is the name you would hear as the founder of Boko Haram, Muhammad Yusuf. But it was actually founded by another person and then handed over to Muhammad Yusuf in 2002. So since the formation of Boko Haram or since the reemergence in 2002 during the return of Nigeria to democracy, it's changed its name several times. Boko Haram has been called Muhajirun, it's been called Yusufia. Nigerian Taliban, Jamal Asmatullah Ida, 
and then Boko Haram. Boko Haram means Western education is a sin, or Western culture is a sin. But it has a very long Islamic name, which I don't want to pronounce now. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. So Boko Haram is the name... Does that pretty much then define what the mission is? The mission is to ensure that there is no Western education or no teaching of Western cultural practices or no, I suppose, I don't know if it links to a kind of previous imperial rule, but kind of pushing away from Western influence in the north of Nigeria. Absolutely. You know, unlike the founder, Lawal, who was a university scholar, Muhammad Yusuf was a secondary school dropout who had a totally different ideology. And Yusuf attributed all the evils in the land to Western culture, including Western education. And he advocated that the only way to purify the land was to embark on a total demolition of Western structures, including the police, the military, and establish Sharia law as the only law of the land. So what he argued was that Western culture or the culture of the infidels, as they call it, has actually polluted the land, polluted Islam, and actually made a lot of Muslim children to sin. So he argued that, well, the way to have a pure land, the way to have a land devoid of evil, devoid of political manipulation by the West, because he argued that democracy is a manipulation of the West and not something that should be practiced in Nigeria. So he argued that in order for us to have all of this, we have to dismantle the education system and change it to an Islamic educational system. We have to dismantle the media. We have to dismantle the police and have Islamic police. And then we have to do everything according to the dictates of halal or the dictates of Sharia. So that is the argument. And that was the philosophy which Bukhara was based according to Muhammad Yusuf. So if we think of the time period we're talking about here, we're talking about mid to late 90s, early 2000s, then we're crossing over directly with early Al-Qaeda terrorist attacks on the African continent. We're tying over here with the start of the war on terror, the war against the Taliban as well. As we look across this period, are there crossovers, are there links that emerge between Al-Qaeda or the Taliban and Boko Haram? Well, there are links in terms of oppression, some links in terms of ideology. Eventually, there was the link in terms of having a caliphate, which was the ultimate goal of Boko Haram, because what they did was to have an enclave around some northern states where they governed, collected taxes, and also ruled in some ways similar to what Al-Qaeda was doing around the borders of Afghanistan and Pakistan. So there are links in terms of the methods of operations. There are links in terms of the way they generated revenue. And later, we also found out that there were cross or international exchange of ideas between these groups because we found out that a lot of Boko Haram members, some of them traveled to Al-Shabaab in Somalia to get some training. And we know that there is a link between Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda. So there are definitely some links between these groups in different countries. So there's almost a kind of global clandestine network we can talk about a little bit there. What about in terms of funding? Was there any funding coming in from Al-Qaeda or does Boko Haram have a very different way of making money? You mentioned taxes. Is it also natural resources as well? How does Boko Haram sustain yeah, even up to now, as always, they have lots of means of generating resources. One of them is taxes, and that is why taking over territories is very important. So they take over territories, they offer themselves as the alternate government, and then they collect taxes. And a lot of these communities where they take over are actually communities that are largely neglected by the state communities where the states do not have resources to actually govern. I'll give you an example. So when there's something we call the National Youth Service in Nigeria, so when you graduate from the university, you're supposed to work for the government for one year and then you get a certificate before you then go and work in the secular world. And it's for two reasons. One, it's supposed to be for national integration. So if you are from southern Nigeria, you are moved to northern Nigeria for this operation, for this one-year youth service, 
And when it started, it was a laudable initiative because it gave people the opportunity to learn the culture of other people from other places. I am originally from Southwest Nigeria. When I finished my university, I was posted to Northern Nigeria in Kaduna State. And I learned a lot of things. I met a lot of amazing people that we're still friends today all over Nigeria because if you are from the South, you are not supposed to serve in the South except you have medical conditions or some other things like that. So for you to have an idea of how these regions are, when we were serving in Kaduna State, within Kaduna State, I was quite lucky I was in Kaduna City. But some people were posted to some local government outside of Kaduna State and they had to travel six hours from Kaduna City to this local government. Partly because of bad roads, partly because of the distances and the connections that they have to make. So some of this area, some of these regions are largely cut off from the main cities. So for instance, if you look at some of the communities where Boko Haram took charge completely in 2006, 7 thereabouts, these are communities that are hundreds of miles from Maiduguri, which is the state capital, and areas where the state still have very little presence. And this was an advantage to them because these are largely ungoverned areas. So Boko Haram would take over these areas, impose taxes on the farmers. So they pay taxes to farm, they pay taxes to harvest, they pay taxes to sell. And then they pay taxes to travel as well from one community to the other. In return, they offer protection and they offer some services like maternity centers and things like that. So that was one. Or another mode of revenue was fishing around Lake Chad. So they obtained a lot of taxes from the farmers or from the fishermen. So they would not allow them to bring their fishes to the cities without paying taxes on the roads. And because these stretches of roads do not have any state presence, they practically took over this. So they got a lot of money from Lake Chad, from fishing in Lake Chad. And then they also made a lot of money from illegal trade of firearms. Yeah, there's the Lake Chad Corridor, isn't there? The movement of goods up and down from North Africa down towards Sub-Saharan Africa. And and that's one of the key corridors of smuggling not only weapons, but also people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, there's Agares in the J, which is a major hub for human trafficking. There are Boa in northern Cameroon. So this corridor, they actually make a lot of money by taxing or preventing goods from coming in except you pay taxes. So they made a lot of money from there. And then Boko Haram, since 2011 as well, they've profited a lot from arms importation from Libya. So they bring in a lot of arms to Libya, which are then sold on the black market. There was a survey that was done in 2014 or 2015, and there were about 3 million small and light weapons in Nigeria in the hands of non-state actors. So these are huge black market. You know, sometimes when I go for research work in these communities, if it is safe enough, and then I call on my local guards and everything, they are all armed with AK-47 rifles. So it tells us that, you know, there's a lot of arms proliferation and then they got a lot of money from there. Then they moved on to kidnapping. The Chibok girls was the biggest one because of the number of girls kidnapped and then sold on to some other groups. So they also made a lot of money from kidnapping, which they learned actually from Islamic State in the Maghreb. So they learned that, you know, Islamic State in the Maghreb, they actually kidnap expatriates and foreigners and they made a lot of money from there. So Boko Haram too made a lot of money. I can remember in 2005 or 2004, they kidnapped some contractors, some Italian contractors, and they were reportedly paid about 2 million euros before they released these people. So they made a lot of money from kidnapping as well. So they've been able to evolve and, you know, get lots of means of generating income. The Ides of March, the 15th of March, this day is arguably the most well-known day of the ancient history calendar. This day in 44 BC, when Julius Caesar, dictator of Rome, was assassinated in a Senate meeting. But what do we know about the events of the day itself? What happened next? And who were these figures involved in this assassination? Well, join us on the Ancients from History Hit every Sunday this month as we find out in our special Ides of March mini-series. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Does public opinion or public support not matter to Boko Haram? Because I can only imagine that the kidnapping of almost 300 schoolgirls and then selling them off around the country, if not the world, is not going to make you politically popular in the region. Yeah, you know, the thing is, I've written extensively on Boko Haram, and one of the things I found in one of my articles, which is published, is the fact that Boko Haram got a lot of patronage from politicians. So, in terms of how they became very prominent, there is this fascinating piece, which I wrote in 2018, I think, where I made a comparison between Boko Haram and MEND in the Niger Delta, the movement of emancipation of the Niger Delta. So the title of the article is Formation of Insurgent Groups, MEND and Boko Haram in Nigeria. And I drew a comparison between these two groups because what happened was when Nigeria returned to democracy in 1999, the first election was in 2003. But prior to the election, there was a lot of um, politicking, a lot of maneuverings, before the elections. And then there was already the agitation in the Niger Delta. There was a lot of unrest. In, so Niger Delta is the south-south region of Nigeria, the oil-producing region, for those who are not familiar with Nigeria. So this is the oil-producing region. This region has been in turmoil since 1999, prior to 1999, when Nigeria returned to democracy. So the youth in the Niger Delta were restive. They were agitating for a share in the oil infrastructure. And so there was a lot of money. So in order to placate these youths, the government threw a lot of money into this region in order to placate the youth and also to reduce the violence in the region. So in 2002, the governor, the former governor of Bayelsta State, then in the quest to retain the governorship position of the state, created what he called the Niger Delta Volunteers. So he went to the federal government. Obasanjo was the president of Nigeria then. And then he went to the president and he said, we're having issues of piracy in Bayelsa. I would like to create a volunteer force, armed volunteer force, that would assist the police and the military in curbing piracy in the region. And then the president allowed him. They said, yeah, that's a laudable initiative. Train them and make sure all the weapons they are given are registered. But the state did not realize that actually it did not create this group to prevent trafficking or to prevent piracy. He actually formed this group in order to deter his opponents for the 2003 re-elections. So these men were harmed, hundreds of young men were harmed. And then he told them, he said, look, it's all about politics. What I need you for is to threaten anyone who wants to campaign against me throw up some bombs, one or two places, just cause violence in the state. And this really worked for him because 
In 2011, election in Niger Delta was very bloody. Human Rights Watch, they wrote extensively on the 2003 elections, especially in that region. And this was how all these insurgent groups were formed. Because immediately after the election, the governor neglected all the promises he made to the youths. He abandoned them and then left them to fend for themselves. But he couldn't take these weapons he had procured for them away from them. So many of them then took these weapons to then form different insurgent groups in the Niger Delta. And that's why you have groups like Niger Delta Volunteer Force, uh, Niger Delta's Purpose Volunteer, Asari Dokubo, Tome Akete, and all these men taking up arms against the state. So it was actually as a result of political manipulations. So in 2005, 2006, after the elections, the governors in the northern region took a clue from what happened in South-South and they said, look, for us to win 2007 elections, we also need groups like Movement of Emancipation of the Niger Delta. And this was how Boko Haram became emboldened because Boko Haram had a structure at the grassroots level where they could easily gather thousands of people. Muhammad Yusuf was preaching to hundreds of thousands of people every month and he was gathering popularity. And you know politicians work with numbers. So this was how Boko Haram went on from being local forces, tormenting people around the borders of the country to becoming stakeholders in the state. Because some governors in northern Nigeria, in Benue, in Yobe, and some other states actually enlisted the support of Boko Haram to win 2007 election. So when you look at the activities of Boko Haram, you discover that between 2005 and 2008, there was an increase in their activities. This was the time they were emboldened by the states. Some of the state governors actually gave them harms. In fact, it's on record that the former president at that time, Atiku Abubakar, went on to say he actually advised these governors not to harm Boko Haram, not to harm insurgent groups. So that was how Boko Haram became a major player around the region. So a lot of politicking actually resulted in the formation of Boko Haram and the strengthening of Boko Haram into an international terrorist organization. You always have to look back when it comes to terrorist groups, look back to the nation state and see where they're getting extra resources and extra support from. But what I didn't expect you to say was that when it comes to Boko Haram, it comes from, in many ways, the Nigerian state itself. So Boko Haram have grown from being simply a terrorist organisation hell-bent on removing Western education, that being their political goal, to actually being a political and economic organisation in their own right that are conducting attacks to maintain their economic interests and maintain the status quo in the Niger Delta area so that they can, well, make also a lot of money off oil in this particular region and all the way up to Lake Chad where you can continue the smuggling. It's all about causing violence to maintain your operations. Absolutely, but Boko Haram doesn't operate in the Niger Delta. Okay. Yeah, so they only operate in the northeastern and now north central part of Nigeria. But what they did or what they're doing is a replica of what the insurgent groups in the Niger Delta are doing. So they were just taking cues from each other and then being used as agents of political instability in order to attain or retain political positions. So when we see attacks by Boko Haram today, and there were some late last year on the Nigerian military, and we had up to 50 militants killed and 16 members of the Nigerian military, are these basically border wars to ensure that Boko Haram maintains its territory? Yeah, it is partly, but we need to then move on to 2016. When Boko Haram then split into two factions... So, prior to 2016, eventually, Mohamed Yusuf was arrested by the police and then he was killed extrajudicially in the police custody. Okay. So, when he was killed, he was killed together with about a thousand of his members were killed, brutally executed by the state, by the government, by the police and the military. I mean, that's not killing, that's a massacre. It was a massacre indeed. In fact, I don't think it's still online, but at that time there was some video clips of how the military and the police actually engaged on the cleansing of this group. So thousands of the group members, on record about a thousand were killed, but there are some statistics that more than that were actually killed. And this was what led to the emergence of Shekau. When Shekau became the leader, he wanted to brutally avenge the death of Mohamed Yusuf. 
And Shekau was actually the third in command in the Boko Haram hierarchy. The second in command was a guy called Muamano. Muamano did not become the leader because he was Cameroonian, whereas Shekau was Nigerian. And so he became the leader of Boko Haram after the death of Yusuf. And the brutality with which the government killed members of Boko Haram, including a lot of innocent young people, then gave him some local support. So he used that to then gain local support and then to then say, well, we have to avenge the death of our brothers in the hands of these infidels. So he then took Boko Haram to the next level. That was when they began the propaganda, standing in front of armor tanks. And then he did, during the time of Islamic State West Africa, he copied some of the executions of ISIS by also executing captured Christians, captured military officers and police on camera. And so he brutally used that to instill fear in the heart of a lot of people in that region and also to showcase the fact that you can cut the head of the snake, but the snake is still alive, regardless of what happened. So he then began to reach out to other groups in the Sahel, in Somalia, across the Sahara, and then took the activities of Boko Haram to another level. And he gained a lot of support from the locals, especially because of the promise to retaliate the death of many of their children that were killed extrajudicially by the state. And his support continued until he began to kill Muslims. So the attack prior to that was on Christians because Chiba community is predominantly Christian community. So you have some communities in northern Nigeria that you have um, clusters of Christian communities. So these were their targets. So they kidnapped a lot of Christian children. They killed a lot of clerics, Islamic clerics that were not conforming to their activities. And he continued to gain support until he began to kill Muslims. So he began to kill anyone who he saw as a threat. So that was when he began to lose local support. And that was why in 2016 or 2015, thereabouts, when Boko Haram pledged allegiance to Islamic State. So when Boko Haram pledged allegiance to Islamic State, it was given condition by the Islamic State that it had to reform the organization if they were going to accept that allegiance and work with him. But he stated that he wouldn't be dictated to, that because he was the one on ground, he would be the one to determine and control the activities of Boko Haram in the region. So this led to a split in 2016, and the son of Muhammad Yusuf then became the leader of Islamic State West Africa. So the splinter group became Islamic State West African province, and then Shekau remained the leader of Boko Haram. And is this the current format? Are they now against each other? Or, I mean, how does that even work? Because if you look back through history, it's not uncommon for terrorist organisations to split and for a new generation to take charge or for there to be disagreements, but it doesn't end well. Absolutely. It doesn't end well and it's never ended well. It didn't end well for Shekau. Because what happened was after the splits, he retreated back into the border between Nigeria and Cameroon. And then the Islamic State West African group was mainly around Lake Chad. So they recruited more from the Chad Axis and from Niger. And what they did was they decided to win the hearts and minds of the people. And they promised the people under no circumstance will any Muslim be killed. And any Christian or non-Muslim who is willing and able to pay taxes would also not be killed. So their own attack or their own target was the multinational joint task force, which was formed by these countries to kill and to dismantle Boko Haram and the government infrastructure of these states. So that was the target of Islamic State West African province. But he continued on his own random attack at the border of Nigeria, Cameroon and Niger. So there were lots of clashes between these two groups but they were able to identify themselves. And most times, they stay away from each other. But when they meet, there were lots of clashes. So that's how these groups operated. And eventually, in 2021, the leader of Boko Haram Shekau was killed. 
by fighters of Islamic State West African province. There are different accounts on how he was killed, but I think the most interesting one or the most viable one, which has been reported mostly, was that he was captured along with about 20 of his senior commanders and was told to step down and allow someone else to take control of Boko Haram and then for Boko Haram to then come under Islamic State West African province. Obviously, he declined, detonated an explosive vest, and then he died along with dozens of his comrades as well as dozens of Islamic State West African province. So after many failed attempts by the Nigerian government and the multinational joint tax force, eventually it was confirmed that Shekau was killed or committed suicide in 2021. So does Boko Haram still exist today or is it now dominantly Islamic State in West Africa? It still exists, but it's not as prominent as Islamic State West Africa. And one other thing I want you to bear in mind is that, you know, even when Shekau was the leader of Boko Haram, Boko Haram operated in splinter cells. So there were different cells that actually could carry out attacks, even without the knowledge of Shekau himself. So it was loosely affiliated to all these cells. Major attacks are all coordinated among the cells, but the cells also had the liberty to carry out minor attacks and then remit money back to the central authority of Boko Haram. So at the moment now, in the last one year, I think he was killed around May or June last year, around middle of last year. Since that time, more than 10,000 fighters have actually surrendered to the Nigerian government. There is a massive rehabilitation program going on by the Nigerian state. They've been surrendering in their thousands. But some of those splinter groups have continued to carry out their operations. They've elected a new leader. They have a new leader, but they are not as strong as Islamistic West African province. But they still exist around the borders of Nigeria. And how much is Islamic State in West Africa growing in strength? Because when I was in Niger, one of the things that you know I found from my interviews was that along with the movement of weapons from the Middle East and North Africa after the end of ISIS or at least the destruction of the major group and the caliphate that had been established up there after a lot of people had moved down into North Africa continuing the fight in Libya that as they also started to get defeated there they moved down to the border with Algeria down into Niger because it's a more porous border of a gigantic country and then join up with other groups in Mali where we've had a raging insurgency for many many years now but then we're able to move across in that you know you spoke a lot about lawless areas voids regions which are outside government control and if you look north of Naime the capital of Niger and then south from Agadez there's vast expanses that really are outside of government control policing and military activity and are able to move down and cross that border into Nigeria and couple up with Boko Haram or is Islamic State in West Africa. Have you seen much of that movement? Has that helped bolster the ranks and bolster the technical capabilities, the weapons that they have to operate with? Absolutely, absolutely. All these corridors you mentioned are the areas and these are the ways through which um, weapons, drugs and all the likes actually flow. So they've really benefited from ungoverned spaces in Chad, ungoverned spaces in the J Republic. There was an article I read a couple of years ago, which talked about how Islamic State in the Maghreb actually loan weapons to Boko Haram for kidnapping. And when they get money, they then pay it back. So in some ways, they've actually, through training, coordinated attacks. And then also, when you look at the routes from Agadez, the human trafficking routes from the J up until Libya, there is like a gentleman's agreement between different groups where they mount checkpoints for the traffickers to pass through and they pay the traffickers. And the traffickers actually, they enjoy these routes because it makes it easy for them to traffic people and to move through these routes. It's like a navigation system for them. So because this huge ungoverned spaces in the J, if you get lost or your vehicle breaks down, there's no chance of survival. Because maybe the next community is 100 kilometers or 70 kilometers away. So there's no way you can do this by foot 
in this scorching weather. So these groups have been able to have like a kind of alliance whereby they have checkpoints along all the ways from Nigeria to Niger and all the way to Libya are mounted by this group. So they cooperate and coordinate in different ways, move for training, move resources, move arms. And also some of these groups actually help them to hold people they've kidnapped. Because when there is a lot of bombardment, you know, the multinational Joint Tax Force was formed in 2015 and they've been carrying out a lot of here bombardment. And they, so when they kidnap people, they actually move them into the enclaves of these other groups and then they pay them stipends when they get their ransoms. So they work together, they move all across the Sahel. And this is why it's very difficult to actually destroy this movement because they work in networks, clandestine networks all around the Sahel and the Sahara. And so as we look to the future, when we hear about ongoing conflicts in Libya, unrest in Mali, the overthrowing of governments in Burkina Faso, unrest in Mauritania, lots of political violence and violent extremism in Niger, and continuing unrest towards the border with Nigeria, we can see actually how we can piece all of this together. It's related activity in many ways. The instability that is generated from these conflicts generates that void in which terrorism can thrive. And so when we look to the future now, do we see a future where it's probably less of a focus on Boko Haram? And actually, most interestingly, when you know you see Western politicians say that ISIS is defeated, ISIS is dead, the end of Islamic State, actually, in many ways, some parts of it live on in and through Islamic State in West Africa. Yeah, absolutely. You know, these groups evolve, emerge, and then re-evolve. So they have mastered the means of actually re-emerging and re-evolving into different things and working in different ways. At the moment now, even in Nigeria, there are, I don't know if you've heard about the so-called killer headsmen. No, I haven't, no. Yeah, so these are Fulani groups from the Sahel, the Sahara, that have actually built multiple kidnapping rings at the borders of Nigeria, operating at the northwestern region of Nigeria. So different groups emerged from time to time. You know, it was Boko Haram. Now you have Islamic State West Africa. And then it's difficult for any states to combat this ideology, to combat their operational activities. And in future, we need to look at how these groups emerge. We need to look at how they recruit. We need to look at how they are funded. We need to look at how they move in order to then curb the emergence of new groups. Because poverty is something that's not been addressed. Inequality is something that's not been addressed. The children that live in poverty today are potential recruits for these groups tomorrow. As long as we spend billions and billions of dollars buying military infrastructures, instead of actually developing these young people, giving them infrastructures at the local level, these groups will emerge. There will always be young people who are hungry, who are upset with the state, who feel that the state is the architect of all their problems that would be available as foot soldiers for these groups. So in future, I think we should focus less on how these groups re-evolve or re-emerge to different groups and try to nip in the bud the way they recruit and how they are able to bring in young and new people into the ranks. 20 years ago, it was the same thing. 30 years ago, it's the same thing. Poverty in Afghanistan and Pakistan is one of the reasons that fuel the numbers in these groups. Look at the Taliban. Look at how much they grew in the last three years in terms of numbers. As long as you have people that are disenfranchised, people that are not catered for, people that feel that the state does not have anything to offer them, there will always be recruits. So in future, we need to focus less on curtailing or attacking or trying to end these groups. We need to look at how they are recruiting. We need to look at the young three-year-old boy who is just there working in the community without any future and make sure that that child has an education, that child has a skill in order not to then become so-called irrelevant, as they call them, or irrelevant in the communities and to be able to make livelihoods. As long as you have hundreds of thousands of young people who are unable to access decent livelihoods, 
there will be groups like this, unfortunately. And this brings us back round to the issue of climate change, doesn't it? Because this places even more pressures on these societies and perpetuates the poverty and equality. Olienka, thank you so much for your time. We've spoken about this so many times over the years, but every time I speak to you, I learn something new and something fascinating. Now, you've got to tell us, where can people read more about this topic? Yeah, so if you Google my name, (laughs) Olienka Jala, there will be some things that will pop up, some of my articles. And then also there are lots of interesting articles on the conversation on this topic. So for those who don't want to read long journals, if you want to read short articles, you could easily just look at the conversation. Or if you want to contact me directly, you could email me or just follow me on Twitter or Lainka50. And then I'll be happy to share more of this with you. And then we can take the conversation forward. That is very, very generous of you. You've got to take up that offer and send us over one of your articles and we'll pop a link to it in the show notes so people can read more as well. Olienka, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, James. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, you know, and I look forward to the next topic soon. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. See you later. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.